0: Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. <music> This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brookmarkle and coming up on the program, for fans of Florida history, the big story of 2013 was the 500th anniversary of the
1: naming of our state by Ponce de Leon. I kind of think it's important because I see it as the catalyst, the kickoff point for what evolved into modern Florida.
0: One of the hottest topics for history lovers in 2014 will be the 450th anniversary of the French in Florida. In the 1920s, it, it,
2: his, this particular historian, Charles de la Ranciere, a French historian,
0: um, would be interpreting the, uh, the French presence in Florida a little bit different than we would today. Professors from Florida's oldest private college established a new school 80 years ago. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers.
3: When Juan Ponce de Leon discovered Florida, my people and many others had been living here for more than 10,000 years. We had complex societies, elaborate systems of trade, and our own ancient religions. Our villages throughout this land had large ceremonial centers surrounded by buildings built on shell middens and council houses made of wood and thatch that could hold more than a thousand people.
0: During the first now two weekends of 2013, the Florida Historical Coaches Society Coaches kicked efficient. off a year-long commemoration of the 500th anniversary of the naming of our state with performances of an original theatrical presentation called Ponce de Leon Landed Here. The courtroom drama was presented in historic courtroom venues in West Palm Beach and a land, and an audience in Tallahassee watched as the play was webcast live and projected on a screen the Florida Historical Society Press published a book called The Voyages of Ponce de Leon, Scholarly Perspectives, edited by James Cusick and Sherry Johnson.
4: Well, we recognize the importance of the Ponce de Leon voyages to Florida, and we recognize that the Florida Historical Society has great scholarship in previous issues of the Florida Historical Quarterly. So Jim and I decided to get together, put that together, to have a historic vision of what people have said about Ponce de Leon over the years, invite contemporary scholars to give their opinions and put them together in a volume that's accessible not just to scholars, but to the general reading public.
0: The 1513 voyage of Ponce de Leon is noted for providing Florida with its name, but it was important for other reasons. For example, this voyage was the first documented contact between Europeans and native Floridians and marks the discovery of the Gulf Stream, which would lead to future colonization
1: efforts. James Cusick. I kind of think it's important because I see it as the catalyst, the kickoff point for what evolved into modern Florida. And it's not so often in history that you can actually point to something and say that's the starting point of where our modern society really began to emerge. But it's really true that 1513, which prompted is the 1521 attempted settlement, um, changed the state forever Uh, you can argue that well sooner or later somebody else would have come that's true but the fact of the matter is if you want to look at you know where florida's been in the past five hundred years most of the things that started happening the uh, influx of new peoples the you know contested space between these new colonial explorers and native americans occurred there the introduction of new species into the state the beginnings of you know being uh, uh, brought into a larger economy that caused the development of the state and the exploitation of its resources it's all came from this time and now here we are five hundred years later uh, we should probably be doing an assessment of what's happened in the the last 500 years and where are we going to be 500 years from now. I mean, maybe we should give some thought to where we're headed.
0: Throughout the 500th anniversary of Ponce's first voyage, he has been characterized by some as a violent opportunist and by others as an intrepid explorer. Sherry Johnson provides context for discussion about who Ponce de Leon was.
4: Ponce de Leon was a man of his time. He was a product of the... Explorer cohort that came. He came on the second Columbus voyage, the massive voyage, uh, 17 ships, 1500, colonizers. He was a second one among the second group, so they usually were cut out of what they found on the first voyage. He made a mark for himself on Hispaniola, and subsequently, when he was cut out in Hispaniola, he was awarded the Adelantado or the governorship of Puerto Rico. He went to Puerto Rico, made a substantial fortune, largely by su- supplying Spanish ships coming into the New World. And then, as is typical of that cohort, he was cut out by the Columbus family again. And in compensation, because of his networking, he was awarded the patent or the Capitulacion, to go and explore different regions. That Capitulacion gave him title to go find Bimini, and instead what he found, he found Bimini, but he also found La Florida.
0: Ponce has been credited with making the first contact between Europeans and native Floridians, but some scholars are questioning that.
1: Actually, people should now be looking at the most recent article that's appeared in the Florida Historical Quarterly by Samuel Turner, uh, because he cites you know, pretty good evidence that some of the early colonists who were probably engaged in slaving along the island chain uh, chain, had made it to the Florida coast, may or not have actually engaged in the slave trade, but definitely were scouting out the area, and that rumors of uh, there being land uh, in that direction were uh, finding their way back to Hispaniola and Puerto Rico. Um, And we know now, too, I mean, there's pretty good evidence that Florida, uh, some sketchy version of Florida, was beginning to appear on maps or cartographic records even before uh, Juan Ponce set out. Um, so, uh, So that does change the story a little bit.
0: Cusick points out that it was the 1513 voyage that in historical terms literally put Florida on the map with a name. It is a reference to a Spanish-speaking native in Florida who was able to translate for Ponce that has caused speculation that other Spanish were there before him. Cusick and Johnson believe it's more likely that this translator was a native from a Spanish-controlled Caribbean island who made it to Florida before Ponce.
4: Yes, we know there was trade among the Caribbean groups, trade as far north as the Mississippian culture. And the, the cultural brokers among these different people... It wouldn't have been uncommon for them to speak a mutually intelligible language, that one, a a broker, a cultural broker from the Taino, could have been um, visiting the Calusa at the time. So it's not beyond the realm of possibility, for sure.
0: The book, The Voyages of Ponce de Leon, Scholarly Perspectives, covers almost a century of scholarship with a variety of contributors.
1: Well, the earliest uh, contributor is Judge Harrison, who was uh, an early, uh, I don't want to say Amateur, but maybe avocational historian, and very active with the Florida Historical Society, who wrote a short piece on the importance of discovery. Uh, his work is followed by T. Frederick Davis, uh, who's very well known for uh, writing an early history of Jacksonville. Also had a lot of experience as a weatherman in the in the Caribbean, and his experiences as a weatherman actually figured into some of his interpretation about how the voyage fared. Uh, and then there is an article by uh, Douglas Peck. Uh, retired military officer who actually uh, attempted a reconstruction of the voyage from Puerto Rico uh, to Florida and concluded that the most likely landing spot was Melbourne Uh, and a very interesting
4: there's a small piece by an excerpt from one of Luis Arana's who he was the historian of the Castillo de San Marcos here in San Augustine short but succinct Piece. And so also can-
1: very important because it mentions the uh, you know how we found out what the uh, what the three ships were and mm-hmm. the reg- you yes. know, and the documentation for the uh, registry of the ships, um, and then J.T. Milanich, who was working with his daughter at that time, uh, they co-wrote an article on this very interesting Italian map, the Ferducci map, which seems to have all these place names that apparently came from someone who was on the expedition because we don't know how else, you know, so they would have uh, found out in, in working in Italy uh, what these place names were. Um, and then we have a whole series of, uh, of new contributions including J. Michael Francis's, which is on the Fountain of Youth and how the whole legend of the Fountain of Youth came into existence. And Brendan Sineval's and Eugene Lyons' uh, work on the family history of uh, Juan Ponce.
4: Amanda J. Snyder did a nice bibliographical wrap up so of things that are not available through the quarterly or through the Florida Historical Society uh, that you can turn to her bibliography and find additional re- reading material.
1: Um, and all of this stuff is fairly short to read. It's nice that it's a short yeah. book and you can get through it quickly, but it has a lot of essentials in it. You can, you can trace um, the changes in, uh, in knowledge. I mean, I mean uh, Benjamin Harrison's work Still, uh, cites 1512 is the year that the voyage took place. By the time you get to T. Frederick Davis, they've you know, the historians have finally, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you know, uh, analyzed the text and know that it, it wasn't in 1512; it was in 1513. Uh, there's the um, there are good or fairly good, I think, English translations of the Spanish texts. I mean, they they were done. You know a, a little early on, you can find newer translations that would that would that are slightly different in their, in how they the language they use or the words they choose for the translation, but they're still good solid translations uh, and then there's all diff- all sorts of different debates about the landing point and where the voyage actually went um, so it's uh, it's certainly not the last word on this subject. But if you want to uh, become fairly quickly uh, knowledgeable about what the debate is and the literature that it's based on, it's great for that.
0: And while the legend of Pont searching for the mythical fountain of youth indoors, Cusick and Johnson point out that there is no evidence to support this idea. James Cusick and Sherry Johnson are editors of the book The Voyages of Ponce de Leon, Scholarly Perspectives. You can watch the original courtroom drama Ponce de Leon landed here at myfloridahistory.org Ponce.
5: I came here to the New World in 1493 on the second voyage of Christopher Columbus. I was a boy of 19, but I have served in the wars in the peninsula that you know as Spain. When we came here, we were young. We came here for opportunity, for glory, for honor, for wealth, and for God.
0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society.
6: Once in a life We lived in a sanctuary A song could get us free Slept behind the altar Only the singer song. ago Years old Times we took along, Stealing it out By the night. hard on the telephone
0: 2014 marks the 450th anniversary of the French in Florida. Ben DiBiase is Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, you have here an early analysis of the establishment of Fort Caroline. Yeah, that's right. This is a, a really
2: interesting find that's uh, sort of been languishing on the on the archive shelves for, for a few decades. Um, and what it is, it's a... a, a the The manuscript. It's actually a, a an office proof, so it's one of the last um, sort of proof copies of a manuscript um, entitled "The uh, French Florida," a narrative based on the earliest accounts uh, of the of the French presence in Florida. That was written by a French historian uh, by the j- name of uh, Charles de la Rancière. Uh, in the 1920s and, and early 30s, uh, and this is a translation of that uh, that narrative using original sources, um, with a few translated uh, translations of a lot of these original French sources. Um, and it's about uh, uh, the size, sort of legal size paper. Um, you can tell the paper's uh, um, rather yellow from from sitting on the on the shelves for so long. And it sort of made its way around the state with the Florida Historical Society, and and was never actually uh, sent to uh, sent to the publisher.
0: Now, what we're, what we're talking about here, as you said, is a manuscript that was intended for publication, but it, it never made it to book form. Why is that?
2: Yeah, this is really an interesting story in itself. Uh, Back in the 1920s, uh, I hate to say a rival organization, but sort of a a contemporary organization uh, of the Florida Historical Society named the Florida State Historical Society was formed uh, at uh, Stetson University uh, in Deland. And their primary goal was to uh, publish a lot of these original uh, texts. They were translating uh, both Spanish, Latin, French, uh, and, and sometimes other, other languages. They were translating these texts into English, and they were publishing them using these really elaborate um, uh, and, and very beautifully uh, um, constructed uh, uh, books, you know, so they had these beautiful handwritten etchings and paintings that would accompany. And they were very well done publications. Um, And that was really their primary goal. So the Florida Historical Society, on the other hand, published scholarly articles through the Florida Historical Quarterly. We held annual meetings with paper presentations. But the Florida State Historical Society was really interested in just publishing, um, publishing these uh, unknown manuscripts, essentially, they would travel around and try and find uh, any of these manuscripts, you know, throughout the world. Uh, the problem that occurred, unfortunately, was uh, what happens with a lot of, of uh, humanities and nonprofit organizations was funding. Uh, and, of course, the, the Great Depression hit, and the State Historical Society lost a lot of its funding, lost a lot of its membership. Uh, so the Florida Historical Society essentially um, uh, took over the, the publication process. They took over their collections, so their library collection was sent to the Florida Historical Society. And a lot of the manuscripts that were essentially ready to go to press, uh, it was halted, and they were sent to FHS. And and, uh, uh, in the case of uh, French Florida, it was, uh, for some reason, it was never really picked up again.
0: Does this analysis from the 1920s hold up today as as more research has been done into the French colonization effort in Florida? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh,
2: History is a very fluid study, right? So we're always, our interpretations are always sort of changing and evolving. And of course, the in the 1920s, it, it, his, this particular historian, Charles de la Rancière, a French historian, um, would be interpreting the uh, the French presence in Florida a little bit different than we would today. Um, and you'll see that throughout the text. You know, So when it, his narrative did utilize a lot of primary sources, but the way that he interpreted those sources is a little bit different. But it's incredibly important because not only did he write a narrative of the French presence in Florida— But in this book, he included a few uh, word for word translations of those original documents. And that's what's really important uh, because there are very few that have been uh, translated in their entirety into English for English uh, scholars to, to utilize. So if you don't speak French, it's very difficult to uh, to sort of rifle through uh, Lemoyne's narrative of um, uh, the French in Florida. So what he did was actually translate the, uh, the Lemoyne narrative, but also another narrative by a, a French sailor by the name of uh, Gorgo. Who traveled back to uh, back to Florida in 1567 and on sort of a revenge mission after the Spanish, after Menendez had sort of wiped out the uh, the French fort at Fort Caroline, he came back in 1567 and did the same thing. He ended up killing a lot of the Spanish soldiers that were. Um, occupying uh, what were now Spanish forts along the east coast of Florida. Um, And his narrative has never been translated into English, but it was translated in the 1920s. And and to my knowledge, it it still hasn't been translated in its entirety. So this is really the only English translation that we have of that 1567 account. But when you put all of this together, it really makes for an incredible uh, source, right, that historians can still utilize. Now, we're not utilizing it in face value, right? We can't just read a narrative and think, "Oh, well, this is exactly what happened," but we can, with a, with a very sort of keen eye, we can parse out a lot of details from this narrative and from the uh, contemporary Spanish narratives of the uh, the attack on on Fort Caroline and the establishment of Saint Augustine, um, and through these. Uh, through these sources we're able to sort of parse out you know and get a little bit closer to what actually happened because it's very difficult you know with 16th century um, studies we just don't have a whole lot of documentation so we sort of uh, try and take take whatever we can get so to
0: speak great well thanks a lot Ben sure thank you Ben DiBiase is educational resources coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in COCO. The Florida Historical Society Press will be publishing the manuscript of French Florida in 2014, and the theme of the Florida Historical Society annual meeting and symposium in May is La Francaise en Floride Historical and Cultural Influences. More information is at (laughs) myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Rollins College, established in 1885, is the oldest private college in Florida. Eighty years ago, a group of professors from Rollins attempted to create a new school. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has more.
5: Led by Rice, it became one of the most interesting, innovative experiments in American progressive education that's ever been tried. It was an incredible school in many ways, and Rice was able to attract just, just really high-quality, innovative people to that college for a number of years.
3: That was Dr. Jack Lane, Weddell Professor Emeritus of History at Rollins College. He was speaking to us about Professor John A. Rice and how he helped start Black Mountain College in North Carolina in the 1930s. Black Mountain College was a progressive, liberal arts college that was open for only a short 24 years, but assembled distinguished faculty and graduated distinguished alum in the arts and literature. While many people know about Black Mountain College, few realize that its origin lay in Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida. Dr. Lane traces this story back to John Rice and the man who hired him at Rollins College, President Hamilton Holt.
5: Holt had this 19th century view of a president that, you know, it was a president's responsibility to to build up a faculty. And uh, he used to go out and he would decide, okay, we need a professor here for this. And so Holt would just go out somewhere and he'd be traveling around someplace and he'd come across somebody or he knew and he'd hire him. Well, he decided that what Rollins needed was an Oxford scholar. So he goes to England and he finds a man named John Rice, who was there, convinced Rice to come to the college. John Rice was a brilliant eccentric, to say the least, and he also was very, very much an iconoclast. And he, he created a life at the college in which he was either loved or hated. And was so individualistic and uh, eccentric that he stood out constantly and was constantly uh, verbalizing his ideas and his beliefs in a pretty autocratic way.
3: Although Hamilton Holt thought new professors like John Rice might energize the campus, he had no idea that Rice's presence on campus would create conflict. Here Dr. Lane tells us about the first time Holt and Rice publicly clash over the direction of Rollins College curriculum changes in the winter of nineteen
5: thirty three He led a group of faculty and students in a kind of revolt against Hamilton Holt in the sense that Holt had come into the college in twenty six and without discussing with the faculty, he came in in the summer, and he and the Dean recreated a whole new curriculum for Rollins. And when the professors came back, they handed them this, this new curriculum and said, you're going to teach this. Okay. And that curriculum became very famous all over the United States, called the Conference Plan, and Hope advertised it everywhere. It was a idea that you would meet two hours um, in each classroom. It would be two classes, and you'd meet two hours, and you'd do most of your studying and work in the classroom. It, it was, a, it was an interesting idea, quite progressive and innovative, there's no doubt about it. In the 1930s, um, Rollins became involved in the progressive movement, in progressive education, and Bryce was a very strong proponent of it. So in the 1930s, they decided to revise this curriculum and one of the things the committee wanted to do was to abandon the conference plan. Eight hours. There was no reason why you should be why you should be teaching class two hours and so on and so on. and Holt resisted. It caused a huge controversy and Rice was the leader of it.
3: The firing of Professor Rice created a huge controversy for President Holt at Rollins College. Dr. Lane tells us what happened when sympathetic faculty tried to intervene.
5: Holt decided in February of the year to fire Rice. Rice appealed to some a new organization just been created called the American Association of University Professors. And he asked them to investigate it, and Holt invited them down to investigate. so it was a national scandal. When a group of professors went to Holt and said, "You know, don't do this, stop doing it. Holt fired them. If they're going to stand with Rice, he fired them, too. So altogether about eight professors, he fired about eight professors. They gathered in a group and decided, well, you know, we have ideas for an education. Let's put them, let's put them to use. Let's put our money where our mouth is. So they created Black Mountain College in North Carolina. Alice Sebril, program director
3: at Black Mountain College Museum and Art Center, spoke to us about the early years of Black Mountain College and the auspicious start the college had in attracting young, talented artists from Europe.
6: I think one of the most fascinating parts of the early story of Black Mountain College was the influx of German refugees, or European refugees, let's say, who came over um, escaping Hitler's tyranny. Um, Black Mountain College was one of the places where they came, found refuge, found... uh, uh, fertile environment for ideas and practices that they had already been working on over there. One of the key figures, or two of the key figures, were Joseph and Annie Albers. And they came over in the fall of 1933, Joseph to lead the art department and Annie to lead the weaving program. But they weren't the only ones. There were others. I think that's a really important part of the early story.
3: Joseph Albers was probably the most famous artist connected with Black Mountain College during the 1930s. Although numerous artists, architects, and even poets thrived at Black Mountain College in those early years, John Rice, the upstart founder of the college, did not fare as well at his new home. Dr. Lane tells us ultimately what happened to Rice after he left Rollins College.
5: The faculty finally got fed up with Rice and fired him, him too, at Black, at Black Mountain. He wrote an autobiography, very popular autobiography, entitled, I Was Born in the Eighteenth Century, which probably was pretty expressive of John Rice in some ways, the contradiction of him being this modern progressive educator and thinking of himself as an eighteenth century resident.
3: That was Dr. Jack Lane and Alice Sebro. and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. We hope you'll join us right here every week in 2014. You can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and follow our daily posts on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Happy New Year. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.